Greetings and welcome to The Library is Open, a podcast where we discuss technology trends in the library community and the tools we use as librarians every day. I'm your host, Elise Aiello, and joining us today are Rebecca and Tara from the University of Nevada, Reno. Stay tuned. both of you, we are so excited to have you on The Library is Open podcast. It's episode one of the new season, so we're really, really excited. So could you just introduce yourselves real quick? Tell us, you know, what each of you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Tara Radnicki, and I'm the head of the Dino Science and Engineering Library here at the University of Nevada, Reno. Yeah, uh, my name is Rebecca Glasgow, and I'm the Engineering and Fabrication Librarian here at the University of Nevada, Reno. Fabulous. That is super exciting. And so could you tell us a little bit more into detail about what your positions entail at the library? Sure. I've been at UNR now for about nine and a half years, and I actually started in Rebecca's position. And so I came in as the engineering librarian with a lot of responsibilities in our then kind of growing makerspace. Uh, and so and, and in that role, I have also, in addition to serving as a liaison to the College of Engineering, I'm the patent and trademark librarian, which dovetails nicely into both engineering and makerspace work. Um, and then in the last four years, I've moved up into the head of the library that holds the makerspace. Um, and then Rebecca moved into that position. Yes. So yeah, I've been at the libraries for about three and a half years now. So I started out as a temporary position, mostly helping Tara work on some of the maker competency grants that she was on at the time, um, helping her develop some Canvas modules for that. Um, and I was also tasked with developing this makerspace training program for our new employees. Uh, so her and the previous makerspace manager had started to work on some of the training. Uh, programs, but then I was able to continue the work and finish it up and uh, get through, gosh, I think we've done three or four trainings now, which has been really great. Um, and then I've recently uh, moved into the engineering um, and fabrication library role. So now I'm working with faculty members to get students into the makerspace, get those classes in the space, learning transdis transdisciplinary makerspace skills and competencies. Yeah, I can chime in. There's a there's a third. So the two of us um, are part of the makerspace team, and we have a third counterpart who is our our day to day makerspace manager, makerspace specialist Nick Granger. And so the three of us are responsible for running the space and developing and and implementing all instruction programs through the space. Nice. Well, Rebecca, congratulations on your new role, and that's thank you. Exciting. We are going to definitely delve a lot more into the makerspaces in just a little bit. But I always like to start off kind of asking how people got into the library world. You know, what was your your um, trajectory into that? So, if each of you can kind of talk about how you ended up where you are now. Well, I'm older, so I can start. I guess a lot longer career here. Uh, uh, I've been a librarian about 15 years, so I started, I kind of lucked into a great job um, at Loyola University of Chicago, where I was half e-resources and half uh, reference, and so I've always had a foot in kind of the, either the backend or technology heavy sides of things, as well as the liaison, more public service side of, of libraries, and so I remember at that very first job, this totally dates me, uh, but tablets came out, and all of a sudden people had Kindles, and iPads, and so I was the volunteer who said, I will dig into how library resources will work on these tablets. Uh, I also implemented QR codes all over the place, which nobody used uh, back in 2009. Uh, and then, um, so that was the role that really got me interested in kind of non-traditional technologies within libraries. 
And so after that, I've kind of tracked into emerging technologies and makerspace uh, technologies. In a way, I kind of fell into it, but I, I really loved um, um, digging into new problems and finding new opportunities for libraries, uh, utilizing these different types of technologies. Yeah, and I, I fell into it a little bit too. I um, When I was in college, I worked for a science museum as an educator, and it was fantastic, and I loved it. Um, but then when I graduated, I worked for the College of Engineering for one of their outreach programs. And it was great, but it didn't quite fit what I wanted. I love science outreach, and I love being able to do informal education opportunities. So I decided to go to library school. And actually, my last semester, Tara had reached out saying that she has a job opportunity available to work in the Science and Engineering Library. And I thought that was the best thing ever. This was the library that I studied in when I was an undergrad. So it was such a good opportunity to come back, give back to the community because I got so much from the library. So now it's able, it's really nice to be able to give back to the students. And I feel like the makerspace was a really nice culmination of my experience working with the science museum and working with the college of engineering. So now I get to kind of morph everything together and to helping people within the library. I'll chime in and say, I remember Rebecca when she was a student, <laughs> but she always hung out on the second floor where like real people studied, not on the loud floor where my desk was, but. <laughs> right. I know. I tried to get things done here. <laughs> Actually, that made me think of a question. Do you have like a favorite study spot in the library, like when you were a student or a favorite thing about the library from a student's perspective? Ooh, so back when I very first started studying here, we were a little bit more of a quiet library. And, you know, Tara, the, the head back then got a little bit louder, but I loved studying on the third floor. We used to have these study carols. It was kind of a circular formation, but I kind of could be in my own little cubby space. It was great. Um, but it was also nice um, on that floor, the head of the library, Todd, he used to work there. So it was nice to just like chat with him for a little bit, just to get to know him as the, as the librarian who like was on that floor. Um, I never really had that experience in any other place that I studied on campus. So it was, get to, it was nice to get to know an adult in this space. And I felt a lot more connected to it. That's so awesome. I love that. Yeah, you remembered Rebecca when she was a student. That's so funny. <laughs> And I just love that it was full circle. And also, I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners are going to identify with how the technologies have changed. When you talk about the QR codes first coming out, I was like, oh, my God. And thinking about when tablets were first coming out. And I just feel so old now. But but like I clearly remember working in libraries when that was all first emerging. Oh, yeah. And having no idea, like, well, our databases work on these. And how do we get ebooks onto them? Oh, I, I was part of like the first... Um, DDA, like ebook acquisition implementation team. And like we had all these questions and, and now it's just so integrated into our daily work. Um, wow. Yeah, it's amazing how it's how it's all transformed over the years. Yeah, sure has. Gosh. Well, speaking of that, so what are some special circumstances or challenges that exist in your library? And how does util utilizing open source help with that? I could maybe give, like, when we were thinking about this question, we thought maybe giving a little bit of history about our makerspace and our work would be helpful. We're one of the older academic library makerspaces. We actually started back in 2012. Um, and so we've grown the space from kind of this really little startup and, and gone through that process of scaling up so that we can be more robust and offer services uh, in, into more disciplines and classrooms. 
But we started really small and we started with no dedicated staff in that space. Um, just like most, <laughs> most spaces, uh, we, we didn't have a lot of funds. We were able to buy equipment, but not necessarily even student employees or staff that could help us facilitate that. So it was a lot of us just weeding through, trying, failing, um, seeing what we could do. We eventually got to a model where we hired some student employees. They became our maker wranglers. I should do a shout out. We stole the name Wranglers from another place. So if you're the place that originated the concept of Wranglers as student employees, thank you and we stole it. But so we call ours Maker Wranglers here. But we started with just two Maker Wranglers that would work occasional shifts. Uh, and then so it was a lot of librarians, you know, like I'm changing out a, a motherboard with a master's in medieval literature. <laughs> it was a lot of learning on the fly. Um, so some, some kind of, really wonderful, um, but a lot of, of growing pains there. And so over the years, we acquired more equipment. We got more interest from non-engineering disciplines. Uh, anybody, of course, can use our library and all of our resources, including community members. Uh, we're a land-grant institution. And uh, so we kept getting more and more interest. And, and eventually, we were able to make the case for more dedicated staff. So now we have two, uh, two full-time employees dedicated to that. And depending on the semester, anywhere from like maybe eight to 10 uh, Wranglers, make a Wrangler student employees who work in that space. Um, so I just wanna do a shout out that everybody starts somewhere. <laughs> and it has taken us a good decade um, of constant work to actually get to the, to the point we are now. So, and some of the existing challenges we still have are when you're moving from that startup where people just kind of walk in and you're helping them one-on-one -on -one just as their needs arise, when you want to scale up and all of a sudden you want to start bringing classes that are 50 or 100 students and you want them to implement the makerspace in this wonderful experiential learning kind of opportunity, all of a sudden you need to figure out different product, uh, processes, workflows, and training became a big one for us. And so for for open source, in my mind, a lot of this is information sharing with other colleagues uh, and even recognizing the differences between academia and public libraries and special libraries who are who are facilitating makerspace services, but to a, a really different population. Uh, so Rebecca will talk a little bit more about like how we were the amazing colleagues that we have across the country who are really open with with their training, with how they're running their programs how they're offering services uh, when we really just couldn't like fathom how we were gonna scale up at that time. And we, we certainly use some open source software and programs in the makerspace, you know, we use Cura and, and things like that. Um, there's always issues with, with open source, especially when we think about um, uh, support certainly, but also like accessibility concerns, which, you know, is something we can talk about in our makerspace too, that we've been dealing with, but. Rebecca, do you have anything to add to that or? Yeah, I mean, I think especially challenge wise for us um, was yeah, making sure that we had a good training program so that we can get our students caught up and be able to know these machines um, a lot faster than what they were learning before. So previously it would take a student maybe a whole semester to get really comfortable using our laser engravers and our vinyl cutters. So we needed a training that was consistent um, and something where they can catch up a lot faster and get lot, lots of more dedicated hands-on practice because before they had to learn on the fly. They had to learn on the job. So they had to help people and learn they couldn't at the same time and it just wasn't as effective. Um, so Tara, wanted to create some form of an online training program um, that would just be able to help us 
to maneuver some of those challenges and hopefully maybe not solve all the challenges, but at least make it so that the students were a little bit more confident in their abilities to be able to do consultations with all these machines. And so, yeah, could you delve a little bit more into, because I think this is going to be the meat and potatoes of our conversation, and that's actually how we, you know, learned about what you all are doing is at the presentation you gave, was it a few years ago at Computers and Libraries, or was it last year? Just last this past year. year. Okay, so just talking about kind of the evolution of this training program and how it, you know, it evolved and, and developed, could you dig a little deeper into sort of how you actually flushed it out and how you built it out and how it's going now today? Yeah, and maybe yeah, I'll, give, so I'll clarify a little bit of the background maybe on it too. And then Rebecca can jump into how she um, built out the program. So I maybe, cause I'll clarify that like the problems we were having where we had kind of a victim of our own popularity, which a lot of makerspaces uh, hit that point where you have too many people coming into the space that you can no longer serve them adequately or safely. Like that's a that's a big thing in makerspaces. We wanna make sure our, our patrons can use our stuff and be safe. And so when you can't have eyes on all of them, I started getting really uncomfortable. So did our then makerspace manager being like, there's too many people in this space for us to really adequately help just on this one-off sort of thing. And then besides the patron sides of things, as Rebecca mentioned, we also, um, had maker wranglers that needed training. So we had always done an apprentice style training for our student employees. And typically they come from engineering disciplines, though we're really conscientious about making sure that we get other disciplines represented in that group of students. Because that's we all know that's when the creative magic happens, uh, when you when you get those journalism students or or bio students in there too. And so we had this apprenticeship model and it was taking the students almost six months before they felt comfortable doing an independent consultation, helping somebody 3D model an idea, brainstorming solutions to a problem that somebody's bringing in, this piece is broken, how can I make it stronger? So it's just taking way too long and, and just putting way too much stress on our then makerspace manager and the other wranglers. So we, we had this twofold problem. Uh, and so when I was given the opportunity to hire Rebecca, uh, I jumped at it uh, and we, I asked her to first focus on the maker wrangler training so that we could have this really robust system where we could con like ensure consistent uh, transfer of knowledge. Uh, we all have shortcuts, um, but we don't necessarily want them passed down from generation to generation just because of safety issues or um, there might be a, a particular reason you're using a machine in that way that you're not aware of necessarily. And so we weren't always consistent as far as what new wranglers were being taught, as well as like that the, the, the level of customer service that we wanted. Um, so we really formalized that training. We also did that in conjunction with our library services in a lot of ways too. So the other students that work in our library uh, but not in the makerspace. So it was kind of this wonderful opportunity where we got to think really critically about how we can better prepare our students for success uh, when they're either they're working for us or they're just using our space. Yeah, and so the training program started out, um, it's held within the Canvas learning management system. So this is something that we're lucky enough that our university uses for the entire, um, all of our courses. Uh, so it's easy for us to be able to integrate it into the makerspace just because it already exists and we don't have to pay an additional fee. 
There are some other programs out there like the Sakai Learning Pro Management Program that is free for people to use. And I've seen other makerspace, academic makerspaces use this. Um, there's also simple ways to be able to get the information to the students, like with a PDF or a Word document. As long as it's somehow written down and you can hand that off to the student, you can do this type of training program. Ours just happens to be in the Canvas Learning Management System. And it's nice because this management system is really easy to use. It's kind of plug and play. You can develop your content, put things on certain pages and be able to upload it easily. Um, it's nice because it has assessment tools involved with it too. So I can post quizzes or assignments and have them post pictures of the assignment that they got completed. And it also has tracking tools. So I can see how my students are progressing through the, the training program um, and see if I need to intervene at certain times. Um, and it's nice because the training program it's a pretty beastly training program. Um, it really goes through how to operate all of the machines that we have. And we have several different types of machines like laser cutters, vinyl cutters, uh, a few different types of 3D printers. Uh, we also teach students how to go through basic troubleshooting skills, how to conduct a consultation, how to develop a workshop. Uh, we also talk about library makerspace protocols and procedures and just how to reference out within the libraries because they are library employees too. Uh, so it's a pretty beastly program that they have to go through, uh, but it's all online. And we also offer an in-person training program as well that accompanies the online. Um, so they're sitting next to the machine physically, um, but they're also going through the, the training program online so that they're able to follow step-by-step, -step, read the instructions, handle the machine and complete an assignment that they physically turn into me. Um, and then they have a chance to practice a few more times with different types of extra credit activities so that they really understand the machine. And they usually get about a full dedicated day per machine. Um, so this gives them plenty of chances to explore the machine, um, figure out just basic troubleshooting on what works and what doesn't work so that they're better, better tooled up to help someone with the different, all the different projects that come into the space. Um, and what was nice is that um, I, when I first started, I had just graduated uh, from library school. So I was still developing my own skills. So I had reached out to a few other universities that had integrated training programs into their curriculum. Uh, places like the University of Texas Arlington and UNC Chapel Hill were really helpful to me. And they gave me access to some of their training documentation so that I could just see how they approached the learning process, how they how they maybe worded certain different things and the type of examples that they used. And I was able to use that and morph it into our own. Um, so I big shout out to a few of the places that we had reached out to. It was really, really helpful. Um, and we want to be able to do that for other people too. Um, we want to be able to share our resources, um, especially with Canvas Commons. Um, so if, if anyone has access to the Canvas Learning Man Management System, all of our stuff is uploaded to Canvas Commons um, so that you can see it freely. Uh, but I also have a box folder where uh, people can access the PDFs of all of the training pages that I've developed too, um, with some additional documentation on how I went about making sure that everything was accessible. Um, other resources that maybe I thought were helpful or YouTube videos that were really helpful to me. That is fabulous. And as you were talking, I was just thinking about how many public libraries I feel like could really benefit from this. I know they don't always use Canvas, but I just think I think of all the different training programs that they require people to go through and how it would just transfer so well. So you've really developed an amazing program. And it's so cool that there's the online and the in-person option. I think that's fabulous. 
It's just, that's so, that's so great. What, just out of curiosity, what is the most uh, popular tool in the makerspace or the most used tool? It is definitely our epilogue laser engraver. Uh, top notch, people love using it. It has a pretty wide bed um, and it has a rotary tool attachment. So people can engrave their hydro flasks or glasses or really whatever they want that that's round. Um, so people love coming in to do that. I'll also chime in and say, from a researcher standpoint, maybe the most popular, Rebecca can correct me if I'm wrong, but we have some, we were lucky enough to get some high-end RTAC 3D scanners, um, which really can just change the game. This isn't the 3D scanners of even just a few years ago. They're, they're really robust and able to do a lot of detail. And so from a, a researcher perspective, reverse engineering something, or actually we've done some really amazing work with psychology utilizing our 3D scanners, but th those have been, more popular than you would think con considering they have such a learning curve. That's awesome. Well, I did see somebody, I was real quick tangent. Somebody had developed like a volcanic water bottle, hydroflask situation. So it heats up water or? Yeah, so actually that was one of our student workers. She's an engineering student who just graduated and every engineering senior has to take a capstone project where they have to uh, develop a product essentially they have to solve a problem and they have to create a physical prototype and then present on it so their product was yeah it was pretty much a something you put around your hydro flask or your water bottle and it's all 3d printed and it has electric components on the inside so it, it heats it up to a certain temperature so you with an arduino you can decide what temperature you want it to heat up to and it keeps it warm as long as the the contraption is on your water bottle uh, it was really fun to see them in the makerspace. They were in the makerspace, I think, like every day for a couple of weeks, just tinkering with what they wanted it to look like, the different types of colors they want for their 3D prints and um, getting the right shape. So they had to 3D model everything in SolidWorks, making sure that it can fit around the specific water bottle that they were using. So it was it was a process for sure. It's so magical, I think, that to be able to watch that come to life and, and the innovation the students have. It just it blew my mind just when I glanced at it. I was like, what? Somebody came up with that. That's so cool. That's amazing. Well, and I guess speaking of that, I mean, to sort of to finish off the conversation, and this might, you know, take take a little while to talk about, but just talking about the evolution of makerspaces in general, I mean, since you have been, you know, sort of at the forefront of the makerspace scene, I mean, since 2011 or 12, you said, how, I mean, how do you see makerspaces in general evolving? And I know there's been a lot of trends that have come and gone, but like, what, what do you see having a lasting effect? I mean, I say this, like Rebecca and I talk about this a lot, and we, we say this knowing like we're embedded in a higher, an institution of higher education, right? So our perspective is gonna be really different um, from a different, a public library or a special library. But uh, for us, we really see, you know, this, the spaces that are still in existence that are still growing, that are, that are still thriving are really those that have taken to heart embedding the makerspace and all the amazing kind of maker competencies, these transdisciplinary skills Rebecca mentioned before, and embedding those into the curriculum, and, and particularly outside of engineering or lab-based sciences. Um, I, I really think that's a, a trend that's going to continue. I mean, that's the work we've been focusing on a lot with partners from Arlington, from UT Arlington, uh, and that's where we've seen the most impact and growth. Um, 
Yes, uh, we are the engineering library. So we have engineers in here all the time and they're using the makerspace, which is wonderful and great. But there's something really special when you can bring in a journalism class or a paleo, you know, one of our geography classes. Um, and we, we start using the makerspace to help them think a little bit differently and critically about the knowledge they're acquiring in the classroom. And, and all of a sudden, we, we, it starts kind of diving into real experiential learning or constructivism. And, and they're building these kind of new modes of knowledge in this space. So that's, it's been really exciting for us. Uh, it's really hard. <laughs> Uh, it takes a lot of work uh, and, and it depends on building a lot of really strong relationships with faculty, teaching faculty, um, to, to really formulate these assignments and these experiences for students that, you know, aren't just soldering something or 3D printing something, but it's really about focusing on all those skills that they're learning in this space that they could learn someplace else, but it's pretty fun and engaging for them to learn it in the makerspace. And it'll impact their career and their life later on. Um, it really does help give them tools for lifelong learning. Yeah, and there's actually an example that I'm thinking about from this last semester that I thought was really impactful was we have a digital media class come in every semester. Um, so this semester, they were tasked with 3D scanning their partner's full body. Um, and then they take the that model of their 3D scan and they remix it in a 3D modeling program called Maya. And, and they're asked to think about um, think about like cyber feminism and the concepts that they're, that they're learning from, from those topics and the research that they're doing and be able to import those into their 3D model and to be able to add different components, maybe add different types of clothing choices or different types of components like um, different types of glasses or different types of hair that really reflects back to the literature and the research that they were doing. But one of the components that we do is we have them come into the space to 3D scan. Then we also integrate one of our maker competencies where we ask them to get feedback from their colleagues, their different, their students, um, the student peers, just so that they, they're doing the process, but they're making sure that they get feedback from the different stakeholders and making sure that they're well-rounded enough that they're not just stuck in their silo of making, but that they're sharing and exploring with other people. And that feedback process is a really great way to understand the diversity of different, um, different ideas and seeing how other people see the topic and how they view your, your artwork at that point and how you can be able to change and morph those ideas um, into a meaningful way so that other people can understand that process. So it's it was a fun class and I feel like people really enjoyed being able to understand why feedback is so important, especially in the art field and being able to get that there. I think it's a three or 400 level class. So being able to get it that late in their career before they graduate and go off into the real world. I think too, you implemented um, some version control in the past. So like that's mm -hmm. an example. We have a knowledge management competency um, and like, that's a really simple concept that often isn't formally taught uh, in a class, but in the makerspace, they were dealing with these massive 3D files that Rebecca and Nick were helping them create these 3D scans. And then we talked a lot about version control and the importance and like, of course, this is libra in librarian's wheelhouse, right? Like, like we love talking about this sort of stuff. Um, so we were able to kind of sneak that in and present on that topic in a really meaningful way that spoke to the work they were doing for that class, even though it was a fairly simple project as far as version control goes. Um, but we could teach them those concepts so that hopefully when they're working at whatever firm, their design firm they're working at, and they're working on documents with 16 other co colleagues, they understand the concept of version control and some, some different systems they could use to do that. 
and why it's important. So, so it wasn't one that tied directly necessarily to maybe the original student learning outcomes, but the professor was grateful that we could um, Im implement that in like a meaningful and, and a way that made sense to the students in that moment. I'm just still mind blown by some of the applications you were describing, the full body scan. I mean, this is really, really advanced stuff and it's it's just so unbelievable what, what y'all are doing. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we haven't touched on yet? I feel like there's it's a whole conversation, but yeah, if there's anything that, that you'd like to add, please go for it. I think maybe one of the things, and Rebecca could talk more about it, but like some of the goals for our training were really about like empowerment. We wanted our students, both the students that worked for us, but the patrons that were coming into the space, we wanted them to feel way more empowered. Uh, so I, I think when we struggled with the, uh, the kind of the idea of requiring training, because it put up a barrier that we don't often like to do in libraries, put up any barriers to access. Uh, so we had to really get clear about why we wanted to do this training. And the training was obviously for safety and things like that, but it was really about, we don't want the student to only know how to laser engrave their hydroflask, which is very cool. And we've laser engraved thousands, I'm sure at this point. Uh, but we would love if the student could also learn the full capabilities of the of the laser cutter uh, so that they could apply it in lots of different ways and think a little bit more creatively and, and maybe solve some other problems with that laser cutter um, that, that they wouldn't have been able to know about had we just done that one-off consultation with them and just showed them how to do the thing they were asking for. Um, so I, I just wanted to stress that, that like if anybody else is having those kind of feelings about barriers to access, we definitely uh, wrestled with those ourselves. Um, but I think it's been really empowering and the students who go through the training and start using the space, they're, they're more likely to come back. You see them again and again, more so than we did before when people would just come in to do that one simple project uh, and then not really get the full scope of what was possible and, and how they could utilize the space better. Yeah, and that's why, so Tara is talking about, um, we did recently this past year implement a patron training program. So we, our regular training program was very successful and we wanted to be able to create that online training program for patrons too, so that they can be able to go through the training as well. It's it's a little bit different because it's online only. So they, they can go into Canvas and log in and they can read about how to use everything. So they want to come into the space, they can refer back to that module. Uh, just so that they can feel comfortable enough being able to learn in a different variety of ways. Uh, we've realized some people don't always want to do a one-on-one -on -one consultation. Maybe they prefer to do online training by themselves so that they can learn something too. It just, it opens up that type of access as well, uh, making sure that everyone feels comfortable in our space and that they're confident enough to use all of the different pieces of equipment. And we do, we have examples everywhere and in the Canvas modules, I make sure to stress like all of the different ways that you can use the machine. So it's like, this is how art students can use it and engineering students and business students so that they can get a wide variety of different ideas. And yeah, just going into some operational stuff for just a second, just so people have an idea. I mean, what, what are your operating hours there and how many, I mean, maker wranglers would be working in the space at one time. How does that all kind of go? 
Yeah, so right now, uh, summer's a little bit different. So summer hours, we're 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday. And currently, we have one Maker Wrangler on at a time. So we'll usually have someone on from like 8 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. And then the next uh, Wrangler would come on and close out at 5 p.m. During the semester, we're open 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday. And then we have shorter hours on Friday and Sunday. And we typically like to have two Wranglers on, a on at a time. Um, sometimes those early morning hours, like 8 a.m. to like 10 a.m., we'll usually have one Wrangler open just because it's typically slower in the space. Um, there's not as much need for two Wranglers. But in the afternoon, we always have two on just because there's a lot going on. We have a lot of different machines available, so it's nice to be able to give dedicated time to a patron so you can get that one-on-one -on -one help with them. And it's nice to have someone just at the desk to answer questions, answer the phone, uh, make sure that everyone is using things safely as well. Because um, when it gets really busy in this space, we wanna make sure our regulars are aware of everything. So two one at a time really helps with that. That's and I'll great. clarify too that the, the hours Rebecca mentioned are the same hours for the rest of the, the library. So the makerspace is always open when the library is open. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. Well, where can people learn more about you? What are all your all your platforms, your website? Do you have social media? Tell us more where we can learn all the things. Yes, yeah, so we do have a Facebook and an Instagram account. So you can find us there. Um, I can't remember the handle right now. So I can give that information later so we can put it up on the website. Uh, we also have, uh, if, if people are interested in learning more about our Canvas training program that we've developed, we do have a box link that we can share out too. And this has all of the different PDFs and different Word documents talking about how we developed it and different resources that we can share out. Um, and if anyone has Canvas, they can go on to Canvas Commons and look up the De La Mary University Libraries and see look at the regular training programs that we developed. And we're always happy to chat with anyone. We've done lots of Zoom calls. Like I mentioned earlier, we've tried and failed at many things and we are happy to share our lessons learned. And so we always enjoy talking shop with anybody who's maybe a little bit earlier on in the journey or anybody who has better ideas for us. We'd love, we'd love to hear them. Yeah, you might be getting a lot of a lot of requests after this <laughs> once this airs. So you'll see. Well, yeah, we will definitely be sharing all of that information. So thank you so much for being so yeah willing and open to sharing your knowledge that you've gained over the years. We really, really appreciate that. And it's a big service to the library world as this whole phenomenon continues to grow. So I uh, just want to say thank you both so much again. And if there's yeah anything else you'd like to add, any final thoughts, please do. But this has been a, an amazing conversation. And I so appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Of course. No, thank you so much for having us. It's a really great opportunity for us to share what we've done and be able to talk to people about it, right? And hopefully inspire others to, to continue maybe training their student employees or patrons in a, a more effective and similar way. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Things like this is how the profession moves forward, you know, where we're not a resource heavy uh, profession. And so being willing to share and, and work with each other can help us all go a, a much further than we would alone. Awesome. Sharing is caring. Well, thank you both so much again. And we will yeah, share all the ways people can find you. And we look forward to chatting soon. Thanks so much.
Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Libraries Open Podcast. For more information on the resources shared in today's episode, please see the show notes. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.